This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. Alright, hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run. That is the name of the show. My name is Ethan Alexanian. That was my name. I'm not good at introductions. You know that. You've listened to the show. It's it's just how it is. Oh, man. It's... I, I've mentioned this before on the show. Um, when I first started, I, I wrote a little list of names of people who, in an ideal world, I would like to have on the show. As a musician and a general Beatles nerd, our guest today's name was quite high on that list. He was a founding member of the Chesterfield Kings. He's a member of the Empty Hearts, whose new album, the second album, is out now. He's the author of Beatles Gear, all the Fab Four's instruments from stage to studio, and I'm very nervous right now. Please give a very warm welcome to Andy Babuke. Welcome to Fans on the Run, Andy. Well, thank you for having me. I uh, I appreciate it, and don't be nervous. Okay. Well, it's I feel like I'm just a nervous person. Well, don't be nervous. There's more things in the world to be nervous about. <laughs> that again, if you, if you know oh. what I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I uh, what? Yeah. I I don't even know what to say anymore about what's going on in the world right now. Well, great. Let's Other- not talk about. It's depressing. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about it's, cooler stuff because that's more yeah. fun. Yeah. It's all I can say is just what the fuck. Well, yeah, I, I, I concur. Yeah. <laughs> so how have you been doing with this uh, lockdown? Well, it, as good as you can be, you know, I mean, it, it's affected everyone in the world. So, you know, I mean, it, it's just a bizarre, you know, thing that we're all dealing with, you know, Right now, uh, with a brand new album that just came out August 28th, I'm actually supposed to be on the road in the U.S., uh, the U.S., Europe, Japan, and I'm not. <laughs> so, yeah, that's depressing. <laughs> so, you know, it's, what do you do? You you live through it as we all have to. We got to figure it out, and hopefully, they figure it out sooner than later. Well, it's at least that that's the one shining light still still one of the pleasures of modern life there's a new empty hearts album well yes uh thank you for saying that's very kind of you I, I you know and listen we had a lot of fun making it uh, uh and and we had all the great intent to go out and play for our fans and tour and uh you know just have a lot of fun on the road as that was the whole premise of the band but you know that got pulled out from under us but the record label wicked cool uh, distributed by the Orchard and Sony, they doing a killer job with it, you know, promoting it and stuff. Uh, they just put out a new single today, unlimited edition, orange vinyl, orange swirl and black vinyl for Halloween. Uh, Jonathan oh, wow. journal backed with the haunting of the Tin Soldier, and they even put out a video for it. So, you know, in in timing for october and the whole halloween spirit so they've been really behind it and uh helping promote it you know even though you know the whole covid thing and world pandemic but you know instead of hiding under a rock like a lot of people have they actually went full on so we've been very successful successful because of that um because of all their hard work but you know i mean it's just weird it's a weird setup so, if my memory serves me correct, you guys had a single out, because I remember reading about this. It's like, oh, wow. Uh, Ringo Starr. 
Yes. That that one guy from that one band. Um, that, that famous guy by the name of Ringo. It's funny. Yeah. You could just say Ringo and they know who it is. You don't even have to say his last name. Yeah. Not, well, it's Sir I, Richard Starkey. Yeah, not even that. It's his real name. But no, uh, we were very fortunate uh, to have Ringo play on the new album. And uh, <clears throat> the label released it before the album came out. They actually released it as a single with an unreleased flip side. Uh, they were very anxious to get it out. It's great. You know, we're very thankful to Ringo for doing it, actually. How does it feel knowing that you've played on, like, the same single as a Beatle? Uh, I know we did it. And as you know, I'm a big Beatles fan. And it's a little surreal because I, it's like there's a side of me that, oh, yeah, it's great. But then there's a side of me that I always look back and I go, fuck man i got a beetle to play on my record who, who the fuck gets that to, to do that you know i part of my french but <laughs> oh yeah oh no that language is quite welcome here <laughs> no but it's i mean yeah it was it was astonishing still to this day i mean i think clem clem burke our drummer drummer from blondie he's a drummer in the empty hearts i think he says the best thing his quote when he was asked about it was uh by having ringo play on our album it kind of gives the empty hearts the beatles stamp of approval which is very hard to get well you personally have had the beatles stamp of approval because that wasn't the first time you've done something with ringo no listen all four of us know ringo independently not just from the empty hearts yeah, Wally toured with him. Uh, he Wally Palmer from the Romantics was in Ringo's All Star Band for uh, two and a half years or something like that. Toured here in the states a couple times in Europe and South America. So Wally knows him quite well. Elliot knows him, and of course Clem knows him too. So it was, uh, it just kind of worked, you know. It was kind of a weird way it actually happened. You know, it wasn't something we were planning on <laughs> at all. Actually, <laughs> you know. Not in the slightest way. Yeah. Like, I, I can't even imagine, like, starting the band back in, what was it, like, 2013, 2014, and thinking, well, you know, step one, put out an album. Step two, have Ringo play on a single. Oh, no, no. We never thought of having anybody play on it. It wasn't that. It really wasn't. Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, like, we did the first album, and, it, and the whole, well, going back to Ringo, <laughs> It, the, the concept of the band came to me when um, Wally literally called me. I have a guitar shop here in um, in Rochester, New York. Fab uh, Gear. Yeah, Andy Babuke's Fab Gear, appropriately named, you know. <laughs> Beatles gear, Rolling Stones gear, might as well have Fab Gear. Anyhow, <laughs> um, yeah, I was literally going home from my shop and Wally had called me because he was leaving the next day to fly to South America with Ringo to do a tour, you know, and I'm like, okay, big shot. Okay. You have fun on that fucking plane, private jet and all that, you know, but we're real dear friends. I mean, we're the closest buddies and we have been for years. The Romantics and the Chesterfield Kings played a lot of shows together and stuff. And I've known Wally forever. He's also Ukrainian. So am I. So we have this mutual uh, friendship that's gone back, you know, 30 years or so. <laughs> Anyhow, we um, we were talking, and uh, I literally, like, uh, the Chesterfield Kings weren't playing anymore, and um, 
And I literally just threw it out there to him. Like it was like one of those ideas that just comes to your head and you just say it because I said, Hey man, when you come back, what if we get a band together and like, and like, just like pretend like that you had that feeling when you were a kid and you saw the stones or you saw the Beatles on TV and you're like, Oh man, I want to do that. And you went out and figured out how to get a guitar and figure out how to play it. And you got together with other guys and you're just like obsessed with like, Oh, we got to do this, you know? And, and that magical feeling you get. And he goes, well, who else are you thinking? And I go, well, we both know Clem and he's the, you know, one of the best drummers in the world, you know, Clem actually played in the romantics for a while. And, you know, I, did a lot of shows with Blondie and various other things that Clem did. So I knew Clem very well. And then Elliot, you know, obviously Clem knows Elliot and, and Wally played with the cars, uh, you know, romantics playing with them. And so, so kind of all knew each other and Wally's going, yeah, but we all live in different cities. I go, oh, we'll figure something out. Why don't you go on your tour big shot and give me a call when you get back. So I literally get a phone call back a month later Hey, how did the tour go? Ah, oh, great. He goes, yeah, but you know, I got to talk to you. I've been thinking about that idea. I really think we should do it. I go, yeah. So I called Clem up and, um, and, and he was totally game. And I called Elliot and said, yeah, well, so Wally and I hopped on a plane. We flew out to LA and we literally rented like a little rehearsal studio and we just showed up with some guitars and <laughs> a couple amps and just got in a room and started playing Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley songs and stuff. And, Hey, I got this idea for a song. And literally we did that about three or four times tops. And then Clem, I have a big studio here in Rochester. It's a private studio, but you know, the guys knew about it. Clem called me up. I remember it was like March uh, and he goes, um, Hey, I booked the flight to Rochester. We got to record all those songs. We had like, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 songs, something like that. All within those three or four rehearsal yeah. days. Yeah. Because it, uh, we're friends and and yeah everybody's pretty talented and everybody's you know they're you know they're real guys that know how to play and it was very easy to work together because we all like the same stuff and um and Clem goes yeah i booked my flight like he didn't ask anybody he just booked the flight and assumed that everybody could do it at this <laughs> specific time that he picked <laughs> i called the other guy to go hey Clem booked the flight they're going wow yeah i guess we could just yeah so we literally like showed up here we got a hold of Ed Stasium, who's a, you know, who's, you know, did the Ramones. He did everything from the Smithereens to, you know, uh, Talking Heads, you know, Living Color, a ton of other bands that he's got multi-platinum albums with. That he's a friend of ours, and we asked him to help produce it, so he came in, and we had a bunch of equipment sent here, and he literally cut the record in like five days, and we didn't even know what we were going to do. We, I don't even think we had a name of the band at the time. It's it's irrelevant. No, we just did it because we we're trying to have fun, and we were having a lot of fun. Hence, we cut a record in five yeah. days. And uh, and then we, you know, I mean, we weren't really thinking beyond that. We just thought, okay, well, maybe we'll go out and play some shows or something, you know, see if anybody likes this. And we quickly had like some guy want to manage us right away, and they got us a record deal immediately, and. Like next thing you know, we're like we're doing a tour here in the states and flying to Japan right after. You know, it just happened like really quick. Yeah, and we didn't think nothing of it. I mean, we, we didn't plan out the record. We didn't think about anything. I mean, and that's kind of how we work. And the premise of the band was always, uh, don't like 
um, don't take it too seriously. This is supposed to solely be fun. As soon as it's not fun, we stop. That was the rule. <laughs> and and also the other rule was like each guy's got commitments to you know like Clem plays in Blondie, so if Blondie's got a tour, then he's got to do that. He can't not do it. That's his main thing. You know, the Romantics got a summer tour. They got to do it. Well, he's got to do that. So that would always come first. So anyhow. You know, so we had time where we didn't do anything because the other guys were busy with other shit. But uh, then we thought it was time to do another another album. And this time, instead of just like rushing and just, rec- you know, writing a bunch of songs and recording them, we actually thought it out. So the new album's more, we took our time writing songs. We wanted it to be more like how you used to buy a record back in the day and you know, it was an event and you brought it home and you played it and you're like kind of like, you know, you got higher, you got drunk or something and you kind of put it on and you listen to it from beginning to end because it was a piece of work. It wasn't just like I heard a song, you know, higher drunk. We on fans on the run don't condone <laughs> drug use o- only unless, you know, you want to. Yeah, well, you know? exactly. So, yeah, it's we, fun. And, and in doing the album, we had no preconceived notion of like what what to do on it you know as far as oh we're gonna have this guy playing or no we again wrote the songs at a couple different sessions got together you know because we all live in different cities so you'd you'd have to fly to la or you know those guys like coming to rochester because i have a studio here so we'll get together a bunch of times then we actually brought ed in we recorded it and the ringo thing fits in here because we cut all the songs for the record (laughs) and and then we were done with that, the basic tracks, and then we came back to do vocals, and Clem, I think, was busy with Blondie. He's out on the road. And so we started cutting the vocals, and, you know, after day's session in the studio, we're at a restaurant drinking martinis and shit. And uh, Wally kept on lamenting over this one song, and it was actually a leftover song from the first album that I thought was a really good song. And he kept on saying that Clem... He thought Clem played maybe a little too fast, that it had to be more in the pocket, laid back. And I go, I think it's fine. And our producer, Ed, was going, ah, you're crazy, Wally. Yeah, it's good. And like the next night, same thing, we're drinking martinis. Ah, you know, I really think I would have been, we should have recut it again just one more time. And I think it's fine. Then he brought up, he goes, you know, when I played with Ringo, I used to stand in front of the drum riser all the time, and he would just play in the pocket man it was so great that's what this song needed i go all right big shot call up ringo and ask him to play on it you know you big mouth you know when, go right ahead and, and we joke about it right he goes yeah right nobody gets a beetle to play on their record i go yeah all right so it, this became like a joke and every time he brought up or we had to do the vocals on that particular track he'd be like well you know it's still too far. i go call up ringo then or shut up you know what it became like this standing joke with us for a yeah. while and to the point where we were making it ridiculous like you know a couple months went on and like you know wally lives in detroit so he would go back to detroit like four o'clock in the morning i'd send him a picture of ringo from help or something you know what i mean yeah just, just picture you know just to just to fuck with him and stuff and then sure enough a, a couple months later um while he was talking to Ringo on the phone and, and Ringo was asking him, you know, how's the record going and everything? He goes, you know, it's going really well. Funny you should ask, though. There's this one song that I had together and, um, you know, we caught it and Clem played a, 
little fast on it for my taste. I want it. It needs like how you play more in the pocket. And, you know, you know, maybe it'd be great if you could play on it. He goes, what do you need me? This is Ringo. He goes, what do you need me for? You got Clem Burke. He's one of the best drummers in the world. You've you, you got a great drummer. Well, he said, yeah, but it doesn't play like you, you know, so. Um, so Ringo agreed to do it. And, you know, he, we sent him the stuff and, and he cut it. And it was fucking great, man. I, I, I want to ask, because this is kind of on a very unrelated note, but kind of related, but not really. Um, I'm a big guitar nerd. I was, you know, looking at the page for your store. Yeah. And just as I thought, you know, I had convinced myself, no, Ethan, you shouldn't buy a Rickenbacker. They're very expensive. And then I see the limited edition one oh, yeah. that you guys did with the aged fire glow. And I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Well, we, um, we're a big Rickenbacker dealer. I'm a big Rickenbacker fan for obvious reasons. I collect old ones myself. And, um, you know, we're a dealer for Rickenbacker. Uh, we're actually one of their largest dealers in the whole country. And I've known the Hall family who own Rickenbacker. Um, I knew F.C. Hall, Francis Hall, who bought the company from Adolf Rickenbacker back in the 50s. Um, I knew him. And then, of course, his son, John Hall, who ran the company for quite a few years. He just retired a couple of years ago. Really? And now his son, Ben, runs the company. It's a fa- literally a family-run business. It's quite small. But I, I know the, the family quite well. And um, it was my son who, <laughs> like... I was at the Hall's home and uh, they're in Laguna Beach. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful home and uh, over over a cliff and stuff. Really gorgeous. And we, you know, we were talking about all kinds of stuff. And I had seen some stuff at the factory because he had us over to the factory and I saw some guitars they were making that were very unique. And I, when we were at his house, I said, John, you know, what What were those guitars with those, you know, mirror finish and on the pickguard? And he goes, oh, that's for the Japanese distributor. I go, oh, how many of those you got to make when you do that? He goes, oh, minimum of 25. So it's worth our while because we don't really do custom work. No. So w- when I came back and we we're at my shop and I was telling my son about it who works for me. And, um, you know, I don't know, about a month later, he says, hey, you should call John Hall up and ask him if he'll do a limited run for us, you know, and I, ah, they'll never do it. They, they just don't, you know, we're just a dealer. They they did it for a distributor because I ah, tried for the hell and I called John and he was willing to do it. We're the first shop anywhere in the whole world, actually, that they did an exclusive run for. And it was just a stock 330 in snow glow. So it was pure white, white, mm-hmm. white pick card. They did 25 and they sold out like in a day. And um, <laughs> 25 Rickenbackers sold out in and, a day. Yeah. And then, and so it was kind of, uh, then, you know, I saw the guys at the NAM show, the guys from Rickenbacker, and I said, hey, I'd like to do another order. They're going, oh, no, 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 hang on, hang on. We're going to have to pause that for a bit. What we did for you caused us a real shit show. Every dealer is going, hey, how come you did it for him? You got to do it for us. And now we got to do a couple limited runs for some other people and blah, 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 blah. So (laughs) subsequently, I think this is the fifth instrument that we've done with them. We did the 
330 snow glow. Then we did um, a 4003 base with vintage pickups, vintage nameplate, everything. It's also in snow glow and white with checkerboard binding. <laughs> and then we did um, a black, like the 360 that we show now with the vintage, yeah. but we did it in black. And we did 30 of those. Those sold out right away. And then we did um, a candy apple green metallic base. Those sold out right away. We did 30 of those. Beginning of this year, we did, uh, it was uh, candy apple purple. So it was based on an old muscle car, uh, Mopar Chrysler Dodge. Okay. Uh, old plum crazy purple is the color. And we did that. Um, that, that literally sold out in like, 20 hours i mean they all 30 of them sold out right away and so this time i didn't want to like just sell them out right away i wanted to have have them kind of like trickle out because then people get pissed they can't get them like it gets offered and it's gone in one second so we kind of didn't really advertise it we kind of just put it out there and so i think i think we only have six left or something like that out of the 30 so oh, they're so you can actually purchase yourself one you know we do ship to canada yeah again if <laughs> i had like an extra it's like four grand three or four uh 32.99 i believe um it's, it's like four grand canadian yeah you could go rob a bank you know it's easy <laughs> I, I could you know it's worth it for a rickenbacker yeah right Oh, because that that vintage fire glow is just beautiful. Yeah, we. Um, yeah, it's, I, to be honest with you, a lot of those things are designed after just the simple fact that I, I want one myself. <laughs> so, you know, call it selfish, but it's, it's the guitar geek in me. Well, you're appealing to all the other guitar geeks out there oh, because yeah. you know. I, I do salivate over these guitars and, you know, I'm sending pictures to my buddy, like, look at this. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's a um, special sickness we all have. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, but what a sickness to have. That's yeah, very good. Yeah. Well, now I want to jump right back to the beginning. It, sure. Go back to its kind of central Beatles theme. Sure. How did you first discover the Beatles? Um... I had two older sisters. Um, my oldest sister Nadia, she had Beatle albums and stuff, and um, so she gave me my. She actually kind of really introduced me to music. She's she was a few years older than me. She just passed away recently, but she gave me um, my very first Beatles record, which was Beatles '65. And years ago, when I was hanging out with Ringo, I told him the story on how I acquired it off of her, and he laughed. And he goes, oh, give me that record. Let me sign that for you. You know, and, and that was at the point where he wasn't signing anything, but yeah. I actually had the original record with me. So this was post no autographs, peace yeah. on yeah. love, no, no pictures either. You know, but no, he's he's a sweet guy. But we, um, that's who turned me on to uh, music. And I could tell you right now, I played Beatles '65 uh, on a shitty little close and play kind of. You know, record player until it turned gray. I don't know what? if you remember when records, like if you would play a record, overplay it, it would go from being black to like a weird shade of black gray. And uh, that record is gray. <laughs> it's not black anymore. That's how much I played it. It's almost unlistenable now. But it's um, 
it, it was like my very, very first record. So, um, and and I also my sister played guitar and she taught me you know first chords and stuff and I kind of stole her guitar until I got my own. And I distinctly remember telling my parents when I was like a little kid. I I, I was telling them you know, when I grow up, you know, there's different, I think there was a conversation on how people grow up and they become a doctor or a lawyer or something. And I was telling them and very convinced of it too. When I grow up, I want to be a Beatle. That's what I want to do. And they were trying to explain to me as a child that, oh, you can't grow up and be a Beatle. You got to get like a real job. And I said, no, well, that's what I want to be. That's, I'm going to be a Beatle. And <laughs> so, so here I am. <laughs> You're as close to being a Beatle as there is to you know actually being a beetle well no yeah obviously i'm saying it as a joke it was was just a little kid not knowing any better you know so that was my introduction to the beetles and i think we all still want to be beetles when we grow up yeah that's if i do grow up ever yeah that that's a big if for all of us mentally that is (laughs) now here's the important question about that beetle 65 record was it mono or stereo? Mono. So uh, are you a mono guy or a stereo guy? I think when it comes to the Beatles records, you really do need to listen to them in mono. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really believe that. Although a lot of this stuff, we grew up listening to it in stereo, you know, hearing the weird, you know, I feel fine with all the reverb and, you know, shit to one side. It was like, you know. There were records that, like, you'd hear a certain way, and then when you hear the mono, yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, you know, when you're a kid, you don't have a lot of money, so it wasn't like you could go out and own every record. You, you know how they would on the Capitol Records, they would show the other albums on the back. Yeah. You know, and I would like be like the Beatles story. Wow, and then I'd see it in the store, and it's like a double album. And it was more expensive, so I never like sprung for it. And it's probably a good thing I didn't, because I'd be yeah. bummed out, because I didn't realize that a lot of it was just nonsense. Yeah, waste of fucking money. Yeah, but it it was a cool looking cover when you're a kid looking at this little thing, and you know there was no internet, there was no you know TV like you know there's three channels on TV. That's it. I mean, you couldn't really like you, know, you couldn't research stuff. You know, so you didn't you didn't know. You just saw this little picture and you listened to the music as you store were staring at a picture for hours. You know, oh, I gotta have that one. Oh, something new by the Beatles. And I think in Canada you had a whole different set of albums, different. Oh. We had the like, same thing. Uh, we had a couple different albums, but for the most part, they're the they're the same American albums. Yeah, but that, you guys got the cooler "Let It Be." I didn't we did get the, the 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 booklet in it. Oh yeah, the the, the nice box. Yes, I, I I'm still looking for a copy, but they aren't getting any cheaper. Oh yeah, and you know, I'm I'm just an 18 year old with disposable income. Yeah, well there you go. Yeah. Um, so, so anyhow, that was my introduction to the Beatles and obviously it just grew through the years and got more ridiculous. Um, this is going to be an interesting question because you, we've already talked at length about one of them, but who's your favorite Beatle? Well, that's really a hard, hard question. You know, I like all four of them. It's a four headed monster as they would call themselves. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I always say it's the sum of the whole that made the Beatles. It, it, it wasn't, as you could see when they 
did music independently after the Beatles wasn't quite the same as the magic when they all played together. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say one Beatle was, you know, oh, this guy's way cooler than that one. They, they all had their thing, you know, and the Beatles were the Beatles because the four of them got together. You know, when they when they went apart, obviously they all did great, cool music, but it wasn't the Beatles. It was different. So it's hard to say. I don't really have a favorite. They're all 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 four of those guys are something else. Well, I'll ask kind of flip side. Uh, who's your favorite Stone? It, it, it's kind of the same thing, and and obviously with the Stones, it's different phases of the Stones. You know, you obviously have Mick and Keith who are like the main two, but you know, I mean, Brian Jones. Well, yeah, man, he's. Uh, yeah, he was so creative, and I, in my earlier days playing in in the Chesterfield Kings, I would emulate Brian Jones quite a bit, even down to like a haircut. You know, when we started the band, the guys in the band were going, "Man, you should grow your hair like this. You look just like Brian Jones." So, ah, yeah, fucking, who better to look like? You know, you look like well, Brian Jones. Well, that does make sense. I was watching a clip earlier today of you guys on, I think it was like MTV in the early '80s, yeah. doing a cover of 99th Floor." Sure. And I'm like, he looks like someone. Yeah, I used to wear the tie and the thing. You know, Brian would always like, you know, the other guys would wear like a sweater or something. He'd wear like a tie and a suit jacket and stuff, you know, with the Beetle boots and everything. Or they'd call them Cuban boots, you know. Yeah. Chelsea boots. But but that track is still killer. Thank you. Billy Gibbons song. Yeah. What what was his group? The Moving Sidewalk? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, other than you know ZZ Top, yeah, Texas band, yes, yeah. Also, he was also in fake zom or the zombies, but they weren't the zombies. Uh, that's one of my favorite stories in anything related to music. He was in a fake version of the zombies. <laughs> well, I, I, I believe, uh, and. Johnny Winter told me he used to get all the better gigs in Texas because his mom was LBJ's secretary. Really? Yes. So they used to get better gigs. (laughs) Um, You know, Billy's a great guy. He's he's really cool. So, yeah, we we were... um, Chesterfield Kings, and we, we, that whole garage scene, you know, all the cool bands like Blues Magoos, uh, Electric Prunes, you know, we love Paul Rivera Raiders. That's why we used a Vox organ. Yeah. We ended up working with Mark Lindsay and made records and wrote songs with him and stuff. I mean, a lot of those things uh, were very much influenced by it. And, and you know, it, it spun off of my love of the Beatles. You know, I love the Beatles, but then, you know, obviously you're going to like the Stones. If you like the Beatles, it, you're like 60 stones, man. Those are fucking great songs. And, uh, you know, of course, the kinks and bands like the pretty things and all oh, that. I so, love the pretty things. Yeah, so we were very influenced by that when we started the band, but the Beatles were a huge influence on us. You know, we we're just trying to 
try to sing that well was it the singer that we had at the time he, he was more fit to sing like jagger than he was the beatles you know? that's one of the things i'm very proud of in the empty hearts we got a lot of singers in the band so everybody could sing and we were able to do some pretty cool backing vocals and a lot of intricate melody vocals and it was just a lot of fun there, there's a reason why this show isn't video because I, I just have the biggest dumb grin on my face right now just listening to these stories oh i i'm sorry i'm pontificating too much <laughs> oh no it's the the big dumb grin means it's going very well oh okay well then then okay um i should have a beer then if i'm um having fun talking nonsense with you perfect you know yeah. i'll take some xanax and we can both elevate to a higher state of consciousness um but yeah i know the beatles are a big influence uh, on me and uh, musically and and still to this day you know it's a huge influence on me i mean even on this new you know you mentioned the empty hearts album i mean the opening track coat taylor that we do on the record uh you know it's it's got a lot of harmonies and stuff when we were making the record we didn't intend to have the song open with just vocals and then then we thought oh fuck nobody have the balls to do something like the beginning of paperback writer on a song <laughs> you know yeah. just vocals that's pretty ballsy to do you gotta have your vocal chops down pretty good and then we said, oh, fuck it, let's do it. And we figured it out how to do it and did the vocals on that. And that's how the album actually starts with just vocals, kind of paying homage and great respect to the Beatles. You know, I mean, the 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 the, the, the direct inspiration, you can see it on the and hear it on the record. I mean, we're we're not hiding that we're big Beatle fans. The four of us are like huge Beatle fans, so. At, at the start of the show, I almost called the band the Lonely Hearts. Yeah, no, no, we, no, we're, we're the we're the Empty Hearts. As a matter of fact, um, we didn't name ourselves. Little Stephen named us. Little Stephen, as in Underground Garage. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, obviously, he plays with Springsteen in the E Street Band, and 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 he's an actor. He was Silvio Dante in The Sopranos. So uh, he actually, he's a friend of ours, and, and he named us. We literally couldn't think of a name for the band, literally. I mean, months had gone on, and every name that we thought of was taken. So we had, uh, you know, we had um, an attorney who was a friend of ours who said, listen, guys, if you pick a name, make sure you pick something unique, because the way it works is if, someone somewhere used the name and even if they played one little gig at a local bar and they have a pant, you know, a flyer, or even if they posted it on the internet, they could sue you for, you know, the fact that you're using their name and they're going to think you have a lot of money and they're going to, you know, who knows if their dad's a lawyer, you know, you, you don't want to go there. Yeah. Pick a unique name. And I'm telling you right now, every cool name that we ever thought of is used. Somebody already is, is using it somewhere. Cause we look it up. You look it up on the internet. It's just, Sure enough, some guy in like, you know, some weird part of the United States or India or some crazy place is 
Like, you got to be kidding me. So we started reaching out to friends of ours. You know, speaking of the Stones, we actually asked Andrew Lou Goldham, who, you know, used to manage the Stones, and he's a friend of ours. And we asked him, we thought, he'll think it's a cool name. So he sent us some. No, the cool ones were used. And yeah, I don't know. So, and then you, know, you asked know, Andrew Lou Goldham for names and did not use them. No, nah, just none, none of them appealed, you know, all four guys got to agree. Oh, that's cool. You know, you know, when it's a good name. Mm-hmm. So, so I was talking to little Steven and, and he goes, look, I got a list of 25 names that I've been saving for years. Just in case I want to start a band. It's the fucking coolest names you'll ever hear. I'm going to send you my secret list. I'm sure you're going to find a good name on there. Okay. They were the best names for bands. I mean, literally, they were so great. And we looked them all up. Yeah, there was at least 10 names on there we would have used in a flash. But someone in the world was using it. I'm like, fuck. So I call them back up. Hey, hey man, you're not going to believe this. But all these names are the best things ever. Take any one of them. They're all being used. He goes, fuck you. They're not being used. And I'm telling you, he's like Silvio, for real. You know, when you talk to him, he's not acting. And so, so he actually had his assistant double check it to make sure. And he was real pissed. Going, oh, fuck. I can't believe my fucking secret list. Ah, shit. So, you know, then another month goes by. We st- I think we were recording the record at this point. Or maybe we were just about to. We still didn't have a name for the band. We, we had no clue what we were going to call it. That's about how serious we were taking. We are just like, let's just do stuff. If we think of a name, that'd be cool. If not, big deal. We'll just have fun. And then I get a text message late at night one night from little Steven. You fucking guys think of a name for your band yet? Literally. And I just sent him no. And he goes, you're going to be called the Empty Hearts. I said so. That's all. <laughs> so I copied the whole text message and I sent it to the other three guys. And I said, hey, guys, I just got this from little Steven. If any of you guys want to argue with Silvio Dante, be my guest. Other than that, I guess we're going to be called the Empty Hearts. <laughs> That's literally how we got our name. Literally. Oh, there you go. So uh, we were christened by little Steven. And I got to be honest with you. It was shocking that it was a name that wasn't being used. And and it's such a fucking good name, you know. It is. If I had been born 20 years earlier, I would have taken that name. Yes. So there you go. So, um, we're, yeah, we were super influenced by the Beatles. And obviously, you could tell, you know, I wrote a book uh, about the Beatles' equipment. And, and that was also a spinoff of being in a band, you know? So, the whole idea of playing and trying to emulate the Beatles' music was really the, the whole cusp of why I wrote the book in the first place. Well, I, I want to talk about the book because I think it's one of the greatest Beatle books ever written. Uh, not saying that because I'm a musician, but that's why I am saying that. Um, well, thank you. Very kind of you. I, I want to know, how did you decide to, you know, write what is now basically considered the Bible of Beatle equipment? Well, like I said, a lot of it had to come, it came from the concept of um, the Chesterfield Kings, you know, we were a band very much inspired by music from the 60s and, you know, some from the 50s as well, you know, blues and you know, Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and stuff. But 
a lot more Stones, Kinks, Beatles, that kind of a thing. And when making our own records, we were really trying to make our records sound like that. So in the late 70s and then going into the very early 80s, production in the studio is really terrible. It sounded like shitty jazz records and, you know, horrible, like, you know, just terrible sounding things that were like, modern at the time but to us just sounded horrible we you know we wanted to sound like the stones we didn't want to sound like you know some modern band you know we thought that sounded terrible the way they have drums sound whereas you know satisfaction was masterpiece you know so we'd go in the studio and argue with like the studio engineers they go you can't do that well what do you mean you can't can we try we're paying you you know it was always an argument and a fight and it and it became this thing where you know we knew just from looking at pictures and seeing like you know footage of the Stones or the Beatles like the kind of guitars they played and see the kind you know Vox amps and we'd go out and try to find the shit and use it. Um, I remember when we started the Chesterfield Kings, we didn't have a bass player. I showed up with a guitar because I'm a guitar player, and we'd have a bass player. And oh man, who's gonna play bass? I go. You know, I'll play bass because I had just bought a Hofner Beetle bass like for 70 bucks from some place. They were trying to give it away because it wasn't fashionable. So like in 1977, 78, the, the 60s had just ended like, you know, just a few years prior to that. And like a Beetle bass was so not cool. But I was like, fuck, man, a Beetle. Ah, I'd love to have that. And I just happened to have it. So I became the bass player just because I happened to have a bass. And it was a Beetle bass, you know, Hoffner. So that's what I played in the Chesterfield Kings. So we were very in tune to getting the same kind of instruments that bands in the 60s had. But what we found is we, we still weren't getting the right sound on the recordings. And it became a bit of an obsession with me work you know working i worked in a guitar store and like you know i'd see all kinds of equipment modern stuff but i'd really hone in on the stuff and you know and people come in and they talk about hey i want to get a, a you know vox amp like the beatles had it and i understood that the beatles didn't use the american made solid state stuff in the studio they used the british tube stuff because i had already been researching it and these guys would come in and they'd be totally wrong and they'd have arguments oh you don't know what you're talking about i was there i saw what the beatles use at chase stadium they use uh, this solid state super beetle and go, well no that's not what they use in the studio though and yeah it was just like this thing and it was a passion with me because i wanted to get our chesterfield king's records to sound cool and then i just was super interested in it too being a big fan of the beatles and it was on one of those kind of days i think in the mid 90s or something like that that i was you know there was this like back office at this guitar store that i worked at and uh guys that i worked with you know we we're in there drinking beer and shit and then somebody came in there going oh, i want to get a rickenbacker like the beatles played in a fox amp like the you know oh you're gonna want to talk to andy so yeah, i go i'll wait on the guy then i'd come back all frustrated guy didn't buy the shit for one and then for two um, you know, the guy was being an asshole trying to tell me everything he knew about Rickenbackers and it was all totally wrong. And John Lennon only had this and he didn't use those pickups and what kind of amps they use. And I go, no, nah, no, nah, that's not how it was. It literally like getting into sparring matches with guys over it. And 
the guys were all laughing and cracking up. And I remember this friend of mine who I'm still friends with now, uh, Steve White. He goes, you know, you should just probably get a case of beer and lock yourself in the house for like the weekend and just write down everything you know about the Beatles equipment. I bet you that would be a book. And I, I thought about it and I look, it sounds actually like a cool idea. And then I thought about it and I just decided I'm going to do it. Six years later, I owe that guy a punch in the arm because it took six years. It didn't take a weekend. <laughs> it took a long time. But uh, I'm glad I did it, and and it was a lot of fun. And it put a lot of myths about Beatles equipment at, at rest and you know a lot of misinformation. And uh, I was able, able to uncover a lot of stuff, like you know Ringo's drums, for instance. He had no clue what he had or what it was. He he thought he had just parts, you know. And I put it all together for him. And it's just it's I, I've a, heard the same thing from uh, Gary Astridge, his drum curator. Yeah, Gary basically took what I did, and then just took it to another level. I at that point I became disinterested, and I was like, I, I did it right. I don't want to beat a dead horse and be the guy you know I, at that point i was working on the stones book so i moved on but gary kind of picked up where i left off but yeah it was uh this was in the 90s i did that i did uh i, I was in london and i i you know wrote to ringo and i you know this is before internet so it's fax machines and shit mm-hmm. bad x and uh i flew over to london and uh you know, he was in Monaco, and they, his his guy Bill Harris says, uh, "Richie, this guy's figured out that you actually have three kits here and half of one." Oh my God! And then you know, and then Ringo wanted to talk to me, and he wanted me to explain to him exactly how it all happened. I, and it was, you guys got a place up there called Casino Rama. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's Barry or like Aurelia somewhere. Yeah, it's but it's yeah, it's north of Toronto. So yeah, before the book came out, he had asked me to come up and bring all these pictures and kind of explain to him what the hell it was. You know, the the whole story. This is before the book was actually out, and I showed it to him. You know, hung out with with them for a couple of days. They were rehearsing up there before the tour. That version of the you know, I think it was nineteen ninety nine or something or. Maybe it was 2000. I think it was 1999. Anyhow, I, the book wasn't out yet. I showed him a galley of it. He was looking at it and looking. I remember like one time after lunch, we sat down at a table and he's shown, can you show me everything? And showing him. So, well, this is your first drum head. Yes. Oh. And here's the other kit. And this is a 20 inch. And then this is your second drum head. And then, you know, and then I basically laid out like seven drum heads and all, you know, all the different kits. He's taking his glasses off, squinting, putting them back on and looking. And and he he goes, Andy, all these drum heads look the same to me. I go, Ringo, they're all different, man. They were all hand done. They're all different. And he kind of looked at me and he grabbed my arm and he goes, Andy, you're crazy. (laughs) And I go, thanks, man. (laughs) You know, it was uh, it was really funny because he really appreciated what I did but yet he found it so astonishing that he didn't actually understand what the hell that that all happened while, you know, he was, you know, in the Beatles, so to speak, you know, I mean, he was just in the Beatles and the shit was happening for him. Mel would do it. He yeah. just, Oh, there's my kid. Okay, great. Let's play it. You know? 
It's like, how yeah. the fuck did I end up with six kits? Yeah, well, it was the four, and then the fifth one was the maple one, you know, and and so the book came out, and and soon on, they I was getting called by like some some museums and you know different colleges and stuff. Jesus Christ, with this thing! Sorry, somebody keeps on sending me messages. You're a very um, popular man. I don't want to be. Anyhow. Um, one of these things that I was doing was in Buffalo. It was at a at a uh, a museum, I believe. Um, some I forget. It was some function, a lecture I had to give. And the book had just come out, and I had gotten a phone call from this guy that collected beetle bases in Buffalo. Tony Capizzi, I believe his name is. Yes, and um, beetle bases goes, in Buffalo. Try to say that ten times fast. Yeah, right. And um, he goes, I got this friend, Gary, he's got a drum set that looks just like Ringo's. And can we bring it to the museum where you're going to be doing? We want to set it up and, you know, have the bass, one of the bases there and the drum set. So you could, you know, while you're giving a lecture, I go, by all means, man, it'd be cool. And we went out to dinner and my book had just come out and Gary got it. And he goes, man, this gives me all this information. I don't know. You know, I go, yeah, man, I actually played Ticket to Ride on that drum set. I got a video of myself playing it, like, you know, from two years prior to the book coming out. You know, it's private and I never should. Oh, my should. God. But, like, you know, it was just fun geeks geeking out over dinner and a couple beers before I had to do this thing. And then spin the clock forward, I don't know, 10 years or something. And next thing you know, Gary's like this good drum aficionado of Ringo's drums. He, did, like, started doing this website. And when when Ringo wanted to actually figure out some stuff with his drums, they literally just looked it up on the internet and saw this guy had all this info. So they just reached out to him, and and next thing you know, he's like Ringo's drum guy. But at that point, like I said, I was disinterested. The Beatle thing was getting a little overwhelming. I had done a couple Beatle fests, and and I loved the Beatles, but I was starting not to like the Beatles because it was a little Beatled out. And I had been working with the Stones and stuff, so I was just too busy and and doing a million other things. And so, yeah, so Gary kind of picked up the ball where I left off with that and just you know kept on running with it, which is great. I'm Gary's a good friend of mine, and and uh, but this was like well before that, it was a long time. And again, it was my passion of just trying to figure it out for the Chesterfield Kings. We we're trying to figure out how these records were made, and then it just evolved and snowballed into this project that kind of grew and grew and grew and then once it came out people were like oh my god this has never been done before and i go i guess not <laughs> you know so there you go that was the story of beatles gear in short form uh, i want to ask how'd you get the the other ones involved because i i know paul was or you you talked to him at least a little hey, it was, listen the, the only the the sad thing was is I was actually in contact with George. Really? Yes. And you gotta remember there was no internet at the time. Had there been internet, it would have been way easier. There wasn't. Okay. Like I was making phone calls. And this is like not like phone calls you do now, like it's just free. You know, if I'd been talking to you in Canada right now for this long, you know what the bill would look like? 
crazy, you know. But I used to get these bills, and yeah, I get these phone bills every month that were like three, four hundred dollars. It's crazy. But that's the only way you could do it. Do the research. You'd get on the phone and call people and call people until you find the right people, and then you'd have to tape the interviews and whatnot. Um, and you know, you send stuff in the mail, just regular slow mail. And if you needed to get there faster, you, you FedEx it. The, the breakthrough technology was a fax machine. So we, <laughs> I remember getting in touch with George's assistant, who's actually Olivia Harrison's sister. Okay. She lives in Los Angeles because Olivia is originally from Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, um, you know, and, and it was right. Anthology had just come out or was coming out. And I said, listen, when I'm doing this book, you know, and I'm, you know, it's about the Beatles equipment, you know, Beatles. And the book was supposed to be called Beatles Gear, All the Fab Gears Equipment from Snow. It was, it was supposed to be called, it wasn't Beatles Gear initially. It was, it, it was called something else. I got to remember. Man, I don't even remember what the hell it was called. I had a different working title anyway. Oh, it was and, like almost 25 years ago. Yeah, I don't remember. Um, Beatle guitars, I don't know. It was, it was something else. <laughs> um. Anyhow, so we, we, I reached out to them and they said, okay, he'll do an interview, but he doesn't want to talk necessarily about the Beatles. He's a little beetled out from doing the anthology, which I could understand now. But at the time I was like, well, how can you be beetled out? You're a Beatle. Um, but they said, well, look, I, I, I go, I just want to talk to him about equipment. It's a geek guitar equipment amps. That's all I want to talk to him about. It, okay, well, George wants to see all the questions first. Sure. And I kept it really short and sweet. I figured give him like you know 15 questions and just keep it to the point, not so much that it's Beatle related. And I figured if he saw that I was just being a, a guitar geek, it would open him up. And that's how interviews usually go because then they'll, they'll get chatty once they see you're not a, a, a nutcase yeah and so um i remember typing it all up and faxing it over and then she faxed it over to england and you know the response would never be instantaneous it always take you know week couple weeks right and it was right around the time that he got stabbed because i sent it off it was a couple weeks went by and I was going to reach out. And then I read in the news that he got stabbed. You know, the, you know, you know, the story. Yeah. When the that case broke in the house and stuff. And so this would have been 99. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was just buttoning up the Beatles gear book, you know, is it, you know, as far as the final stuff. And I wanted to really wanted to interview him and he was tough. It was tough to get a hold of. And then when I saw that, I was like, oh, shit, man, I'll never interview him. And I never tried. I never I never pursued it because I thought I soon did find out after because I was talking to um, was talking to people at Apple at the time also. And I forgot who it was that told me, but they said, look, you know, they found cancer. So, you know, they're, they're really 
hush hush and nobody knew about it and i thought oh poor guy man i, I don't even know what to say i felt terrible and and it was really sad because after the book came out you know people said well why didn't you interview george i go well i tried to but then like you know somebody found out you know he found out he had cancer and like you know I never pursued it. Uh, and they were like, people are getting mad at me. Oh, you should have pursued it, man. We'll never know about this. And then I go, well, what the fuck's the matter with you, man? If poor guy's going to die, I'm going to ask him about some stupid guitar. Like, that really fucking matters when, you know, the poor guy's going to pass away. He's got cancer. What the hell's the matter with you? But I, I didn't get that once or twice. I get that a lot. Like from rabid Beatle fans, and I was like, "Man, I, 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 it doesn't really matter that much, man. It really doesn't. It, it does, but it doesn't matter to to be disrespectful to a guy." They seriously give you a hard time about that. Oh yeah, it was it was at it was at a couple of those Beatle fests that I did. Like you, you go, you do those Beatle fests, and they. they a lot of wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. And I really enjoyed a lot of it. But they're the whack jobs that go to those things, too, that are like, oh, my God. And I had to literally stop doing them because, as I said, I was stopping. I, I was disliking the Beatles, which I didn't. I go, I don't want to not like the Beatles. I love the Beatles, but yeah. this is making me really not enjoy it. And it's not fun. It became kind of like a weird Star Trek convention. Yeah. Oh, Beatle Fests. Uh, I, I love the Beatle Fest, but it, it isn't for the faint of heart. Yeah, I mean, the, I'd have to say 80% of the people there are ultra cool, very hip, and it's just fun. And then you got 20% that are like, oh, my God, are you from Mars or are you insane? And those are the people that would latch on to you. And, like, you're trying to be nice, but, oh, my God, it was. And they would be the people that would ask me bizarre questions like, man, you should have asked George, man. Now he's dead and you don't know. And you could have had it in your book. I'm going, I, I, I can't believe, you know, you, you want to tell him, man, I can't believe you're asking me such a bizarre question. I mean, don't you have any, like, you know. <laughs> common respect for another human you know yeah. i mean the guy's a beetle that's great but he's also just a dude that you know he's gonna die from cancer i'd be like a total asshole i mean it's as bad as that doctor that asked him for an autograph while he was on his deathbed you know i mean it's fucking crazy what are you nuts well so. I, I i don't blame any of the beetles for being wary of fucking crazy fans yeah, yeah, you know, you see that and, you know, you experience that at different levels and stuff and you understand it. And so, especially know, since John was murdered by one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when when you when you hang with people like that and you see how they're protected, there's a reason for it. And it's it's not even worth getting into. It's just it's kind of sad in a way and you you have to respect people's privacy and the people who don't, they don't understand. And, and, and sometimes they get mad about it. Like, well, how come you didn't do this? It's like, you don't get it, man. It's like, <laughs> you either get it or you don't get it. If you don't get it, I am. Yeah. I don't want to explain it. You're, you're not obligated to fucking answer yeah. to anybody. So anyhow, I mean, uh, uh, the, doing the book was a lot of fun it led into a lot of other great projects that i did uh, like i said i worked with the stones and worked directly with them and uh 
you know, they let me, they were really cool. They let me go through all their stuff and we photographed everything. And that subsequently led to doing the new edition of Beatles gear, which the publisher finally let me do what I wanted to do in the original one. Because the original book was only half the manuscript. They edited out half of it. So when they saw that it actually sold great and, and they saw once they let me do what I wanted to do with the Stones book, then they said, okay, yeah, we'll let you do whatever you want on the, the Beatles one. And then that's why the new version, the ultimate edition is pretty much how I wanted it, the original book to be. Well, I, I want to ask you now some, some quick fire opinion questions. Sure. What is your favorite Beatles song? Oh gosh, it's hard. You know, I, there's a side of me that I still love help. Help. Just the song help. Uh, and it, it may be rooted a lot in the fact of when I was a kid seeing the film. But it, I think in analysis of it, why I like it. If you think about the Beatles as a band, prior to they were still evolving as a band songwriting wise. You know, I want to hold your hand. They're still like, okay, holy shit, we're writing songs. That's, you know, what do we write about? You know, and it, it was evolving musically as well. Um, and then later Beatles, it was very much John Lennon songs and Paul McCartney songs, specifically, you know, Sgt. Pepper, White Album, Moving Forward. But at that point, I think the trilogy of albums, the I'd say... Uh, Hard Day's Night, Help, Rubber, Soul kind of period, you know, Beatles for Sale. That that time period, it, it was very much a band. You know, it was two guys writing songs. The other guys added instrumentation. They worked as a unit, and it wasn't like, well, this is my song, that's your song. <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. And I think Help is a very good example of I think if George didn't play the stuff he played on it and Paul didn't sing what he sang and, you know, it wouldn't be the same song, you know, if John just did it as like a demo and just sang it and an acoustic guitar, it'd be a much different song. So I don't know. To me, that's the Beatlemania and Beatles, like that innocent Beatle thing that I, I, that's, I think I, I really like that, you know, so to me, that's one of my favorites. Fuck when you when you mentioned help, you just unlocked a memory that I forgot I had uh, from you know early on when I was listening, just being on the playground with my friend trying to do the the harmonies and help. And oh man, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, and, and again, I mean the vocals are just—it wasn't like one guy singing the song and and the other guys just adding a little bit on the tail on the chorus or something, you know, like you would hear a lot later. This was like, you know, three guys singing a lot of the song. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's like two overlapping vocal parts that don't match yeah, up with each other. It was very much a band effort, you know? So in the spirit of, you know, loving the idea that they were a, this, this unit, like I said before, a four-headed monster, it became something different later. Not that that was bad, it's just the band evolved. But, it, you know, when you study it, and, you know, obviously I studied it quite a bit. Yeah. You know, as it moves on and, by the, you know, by the time you get into, you know, 
Abbey Road and stuff. It's very much because that's his song and this is his song. And, you know, they played on it because they needed somebody to play the parts. But it wasn't like a combined effort to make the song great. And in a weird way, uh, I bring that concept, that 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 thing, what I said earlier, if you listen to the, the four, you know, you asked me, like, who's my favorite Beatle? You listen to their four material, you know, the material they did separately after the Beatles, all good. But it wasn't the Beatles. It no. was, it's, when you put them together, it's the yin and the yang and the four-headed monster, as I said, that, you know, they would call themselves. Um, that's what makes it. And, and, and just using that concept for myself personally and, and in the band that I'm in now, the Empty Hearts, it's very much the same thing. You know, I can have an idea for a song and those guys would be more than happy to just do exactly what I say and play it how I want. Or if Wally had a song or Elliot or Clem had an idea, you know, we'd be all very respectful and do whatever the guy said. But we set out the band to be a band. So each guy throws their thing in. Like, you throw Elliot Easton in on a band, let him do whatever he wants. He'll he'll play whatever you want him to play. But if you just say, Elliot, do be do your magic, do your Elliot Easton stuff. He does his thing, which then makes the empty heart sound like the empty hearts and not like Andy Babuke wrote a song and got some guys to play to his liking. You know, I don't, I want Elliot to do what he does to an idea I got. And then it mutates into a whole different thing. And I think that was the magic of the Beatles. You know, Lennon would come up with a part. Paul would come up with a middle section. They'd both sing something together, and 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 then George would add something on top of that. And then you got Ringo playing, you know, like the drums and Ticket to Ride. I mean, it changed that drum part, and it's a totally different song. Yeah, you know. So I I think it's that it's that work of a band. I think creates magic, and I think that's really the magic magical point of the Beatles, I think 65, you know, early 66, you know, late 64, 65, 66, that, that time period, I think they were unstoppable. I, I would have loved to hear like two more albums in between like help and, uh, you know, rubber rubber yeah, it would be just, what would those records sound like? <laughs> You yeah. know, we we can only fucking dream. Yeah, I've actually challenged some bands that are like Beatle, you know, cover bands, good ones. You know, like 1964. Yeah. Mark Benson, oh, very good friend. Of mine. Mark Benson has appeared on the show. Yeah, no, he's a great guy, <laughs> and I I always bust his balls. We've done a lot of events together where I'll do you know lecture and then they'll play and whatnot. <laughs> Did a very memorable one down at uh, the Duval Hotel for the 50th anniversary of the Beatles playing there. 1964 played the set that they played there on the same, you know, in the same ballroom that they filmed the, you know, TV show. It was great. It was wonderful. No, I, I, I actually told that to Mark Benson quite a few times because they do records as, you know, 1964. They do Beatle covers and sometimes they do obscure stuff. But <laughs> I said, Mark, imagine if you guys, you guys sound so good, so much like the Beatles. Imagine if you wrote songs in the vein of like the Beatles finished help and they didn't do rubber soul yet, but they cut another album in between. What would it sound like? Write songs like that and do it. People would love to hear that. 
and you know i've told it to a couple different bands i think the fab four also um i've had a couple of guys from the fab four on the show yeah the i'm talking about the california band yeah yeah arnie's band Artie and ron and those guys yeah and you know it's i guess it's a challenging thing to do yeah well it's not an easy task like hey write some Beatles songs well, I mean, that's what they do for a living. You know, I always, I always laugh at Mark. I go, so, Mark, how does it feel like when you tell somebody what your job is? Yeah, I'm John Lennon for a living. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Can you tell me what your real job is? Uh, yeah, no, I'm a musician. I play John Lennon for a living. We always have a laugh at that. You know, Mark's a great guy. Well, you know, he kind of fucking got to be a Beatle when he grew up. Yes, that's what he does for a living. But um, no, I mean, it's. I think that was a magical time for uh, just the Beatles as a, as a band, you know. And then it quickly evolved, man. They went from that to something totally different, you know. Sergeant Pepper, holy shit, what? This is, you know. And and thank God they did. That was another thing that I. A lot of people always ask me is, why do you think the Beatles got so big? and did so much more than a lot of the other bands. And musically, if you study some of the other bands, like, for instance, if you take a look at the chart hits that the Beatles had at the same time when they first started, is, say, Jerry and the Pacemakers. Well, Jerry and the Pacemakers, you know, I know Jerry. They never changed. They were that band that they started to be, and they never did anything different. They never even evolved to, you know help status yeah. <laughs> they always stayed very across the mersey which is not bad but because they never evolved they never went anywhere like dave clark five had huge hits tons of them mm-hmm. tons and they're a great band don't get me wrong dave clark five are fucking awesome yes but they never turned into what the beatles did they ended up just breaking yeah. up they tried towards the end to try to do it but they were still hanging on to the pop yeah they never had their Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. Like, on on the contrast to that, a band like the Pretty Things, you know, SF Sorrow. Oh, yeah, they, my. they went for it, man. They went for it, which is, wow. <laughs> you know, I'm glad they did. But in the end, then, then they involved into, uh, you know, a lot of other stuff, too. But they did it. Um, you know, the Stones, of course, did it and they kept on doing it and they continue to do it. You know, there's a reason why I've never mentioned SF Sorrow on the show is because once you get me started on it, I'll never fucking shut up. Yeah, well, that's one of my favorite records. I, no, I but- fell asleep listening to SF Sorrow last night. I shit you not. Yeah, it's great. It, it's one of my favorites. But, you know, even like with the zombies, they had their hits and they were very great, their early stuff. And then. You know, then they did that last album, yeah. which is considered to be a masterpiece. Odyssey and I love and Oracle. Yeah, I love that record. But they broke up before it even came out. Yeah, you know, because of the the way the music business was. You know, and if the Beatles, I think, had to depend on cash from live shows, and you know, I mean, they weren't as wealthy as they were as a band bringing in income because of their record sales worldwide. You know, who knows what would have happened to them? Maybe they would have had to stay together to play to to make money like the Stones did. They, you know, they, they were broke, man. They had to move out of England because they couldn't pay the tax. Yeah. You know, 
it was it was crazy so you know who knows what they would have evolved into i don't know you know i really don't know you know sometimes money does that to you you know they had the luxury of each having you know by the time they broke up they you know they had enough money where they okay we don't have to do this anymore we have plenty of cash i want to ask you one last question yes what is your least favorite beatles song this is always the hard one um i would well it's hard depending on who you talk to well it depends on my mood (laughs) but it it, uh, let's just put it this way if there's a song that i skip over that i don't like if i'm listening to an album and then i actually just like okay now it's easy because you just press a button and it's a skips, but like I'd actually walk over the turntable and like skip the record, skip the song. And I think a lot of people will say this revolution number nine. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I like it better now <laughs> and listening to it for all the weird textures than I did when I was younger. When I was younger, I'm like, what the fuck were they thinking? Yeah. The, the real loser there is, uh, the song Good Night, because I'm sure so many people like never listened to that song, because just as soon as Revolution 9 came on, they're like, okay, we can put the record away now. Well, there there was a version of it where there's no orchestra. It's more of just like the band playing it, which was interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it's, it was almost a throwaway song. It's funny because you 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 must have listened and, and seen the interviews that George Martin had done while he was alive about the white album of course that you know he thought it would have been a better single album a stronger single album than a double album you know then you see mccartney in the same time going (laughs) what people say you know about you know this song it's a fucking beatles white album what the fuck you know yeah (laughs) and then then he makes a joke ah fuck you it's it's a beatles white album fuck you (laughs) which he has all the right to say because it's it's you know it is what it is it's classic but you know from a production standpoint you know pare it down to what they were doing on earlier records you know they didn't put every song on every album they did they cut other songs when they cut those earlier records didn't put every song out well that's how you're able to end up with the anthology yes so 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 yeah the the white album that would be probably the one song that i would like i i like you know even the quirky stuff like (laughs) you know my name look up you my number you know I like the extended version of that, you know, like that, the that seven minute version. Yeah, it's it, it's comical. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting, their mentality at that point. And again, I think that was driven by they didn't have to worry about cash. It gave them the artistic freedom to kind of really explore shit and fuck around. Because, oh. you know, other bands, if they were on a schedule because, you know, the cash was short they wouldn't have an unlimited budget to record whatever the fuck they wanted. Yeah. You know? Uh, God. Well, I want to ask you now, if there's, if we haven't mentioned it already, uh, what would you like to plug? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Plug my guitar into my amp. I don't know. But <laughs> no, uh, uh, obviously, uh, um, we talked about my Beatles gear book and my Stones gear book. I did write another book called uh, 
the story of Paul Bigsby, which is the history of the first electric guitar prior to Fender. It shows how Leo Fender ripped them off, which I got a lot of shit for. Yeah. Uh, Les Paul didn't invent the electric guitar. Paul Bigsby did the, the modern solid body electric. That's Paul Bigsby. So it's an interesting study. Uh, uh, everybody thinks Paul Bigsby invented just, you know, the Bigsby vibrato. <laughs> That's what he's famous for, but he should actually be famous for something else. So people that are real guitar nerds understand it. Um, and then, of course, <clears throat> That leads into Beatles gear, Rolling Stones gear, Fab gear, my shop. If you ever need any uh, groovy equipment, go to our website, andybubuksfabgear.com, and, or give us a call or come to Rochester when this pandemic is over and come and visit us. And then, of course, the Empty Hearts new album, which just came out a few weeks ago actually uh, uh, it's called the second album because it is our second album and we have a special guest on it Ringo Starr for all the Beatle fans out there the song is called Remember Days Like These so either buy it uh, uh, or stream it on your favorite streaming service but check it out Ringo plays killer stuff on there it's wonderful well, and we thank him so much for doing it I, I just want to say I, I've had a fucking blast talking to you today. This this has been awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, thanks for doing it. Likewise, to everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Fans of the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.